0: Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. This is Abdul Rahman and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Roots Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution, we appreciate your prayers, and we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. khairan, wa rahmatullah. Still kind of warm outside, it's not too hot, alhamdulillah with the shade, but if you want to get any drinks at all, uh, in the back there we have water and, and lemonade. Uh, it's all free, so please help yourself inshallah and stay hydrated um we uh welcome back welcome home to our uh temporary home in the meantime while we are transitioning to a bigger space inshallah and also while we're trying to maintain you know healthy social distancing and make sure that we follow protocols to keep everyone happy and healthy inshallah um my son musa when he saw me leaving he asked me if the virus was gone it was kind of sad (laughs) because he's so used to seeing me at home (laughs) So i was getting ready to go teach and i said no baba's going to teach he goes is the virus gone i said no not yet um but i said but we're doing it outside so inshallah maybe he'll come one of these times inshallah ta'ala. um we are continuing now our discussion our study of the seerah of the prophet Muhammad Wasallam, uh, with the, the lens of the young professional um so learning the life of the prophet muhammad for the individual who is working, is, you know, at a stage of their life where they're working, uh, managing their personal growth, their spiritual growth, their identity, as well as, you know, relationships, family, uh, and moving forward in those uh, areas of their life. Um, And last week where we were, and I know we started late last week, so we weren't able to cover as much as possible. But where we were was towards the middle uh, point of the Medinan phase, where the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and the Muslim community lived in Medina towards the middle point of that phase. There was uh, there were so many different threats that were surrounding the Medinan community, so many different like threats of national security, so to speak. So you had, you know, the Quraysh, obviously, uh, they were a massive threat that had to be neutralized so that the Muslims could live in peace. Uh, and then you had the threats from within Medina. There were some tribes there that were uh, not genuine in their collaboration. They didn't want to be uh, you know, friends or neighbors with the Muslim community there. And so you had a few instances of that happening and all of these events we went through in the Heartwork podcast during our hiatus from in, in-person meetings. Um, and last, the, the, the time before last was the, the last major, major uh, battle Uh, known as Khaybar, and that was the last major, major engagement that the Prophet had during this phase before it established uh, peace in the region for the Muslims to live in Medina peacefully without having to worry about putting their heads down to rest at night and wondering whether or not they were going to be, you know, threatened. And besides that, there weren't really many other, uh, you know, threats to their security. But there were a couple smaller groups of Bedouins, people who just lived kind of nomadically in the desert, who would occasionally, you know, threaten the Medinan community. And there's a really interesting point about this story in particular that I'm going to tell you. So the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam obviously lives in Medina. And Medina, even though now we know of Medina as being one of, like, the, 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 the two major cities, one of the three major cities of Islamic history, if anyone here has been to Medina, you know it's like, it's it's muslim central right not the podcast but it's like muslim central there's just so there's Masjid nebuwi There's it's a place that you go after umrah it's like one of those really special vibes as people say but medina during the time of the prophet muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, was actually very pluralist it was a society that had many different representations there were as we mentioned jewish families there there were even christian families who lived there in tribes there were Uh, some who were not uh, part of any Abrahamic faith tradition. And they all lived there peacefully. There was no actual issue. There was no major issue by just their mere existence. Rather, the issue was when there was no agreement to coexist peacefully. Now, there were some instances in which some of the tribes that tried to, you know, assassinate or tried to attack, the Prophet Muhammad, despite their agreement, despite the fact that they had a treaty, the entire city, all the different parties had a treaty, they still tried to attack the Prophet Muhammad, and there was, of course, consequences, right? Namely, there were uh, they were uh, excommunicated from the city, right? So it, again, it, it makes logical sense. But when you have Orientalists and people who try to analyze and interpret Islamic history from outside of the Islamic tradition then you'll hear a lot of them will use these moments in the tradition as moments to prove something that's not actually true. So they'll say, "Oh, you know what? Well, isn't it true that Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam isn't it true that he, you know, expelled this tribe of Jewish people from Medina? Isn't that true?" And although that that small answer is true, yes, that that small statement is true, right? we know that now studying the Sira, that that expulsion only happened because those people tried to assassinate him so now he has to wonder like can i even sleep in my own bed at night like can i even live here anymore these people are literally plotting to come and kill me in the middle of this, of my of my sleep and we're having we're supposed to be neighbors we're supposed to be friendly people so as the leader of medina he's like i have to protect the interests of everybody here these people have proven to be treacherous so they're going to have to leave right which expulsion after an assassination attempt, is not even really that bad of a consequence. But nevertheless, there tends to be rumbles and rumors about whether or not the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had these kinds of, uh, of, of bigoted, of course he didn't, but bigoted types of attitudes. So this story is very interesting, and that is that after Khaybar, after this last major Uh, shoring up of security for Medina. Like I said, there were some Bedouin tribes, some nomadic tribes that were fighting and that were, uh, you know, kind of having small skirmishes here and there. There was a small group of farmers and shepherds on the outside of Medina. There was a small group, and they actually were, religiously, they were Jewish. Now, they were being attacked. They were being attacked. And the prophet muhammad he gets word of this and what does he do okay now if you go back and the, the entire thing that we just talked about the prophet was only there were only attempted assassinations on his life by two tribes that were jewish in their ethnic and religious heritage okay so if somebody wants to argue that the prophet was an anti-semite for example right this is typically the argument they go to but this story actually provides a very interesting twist in that argument because these shepherds were Jewish and the prophet Muhammad took it upon himself to send out 30, 40, even some narrations say up to 50 companions to go out there with their arms, like armed militarily, to go and defend these shepherds who didn't have any training in self-defense. So he sent out this group to go and defend these people. And they were led by this young companion, Osama bin Zayd, who was known most notably, uh, people talk about him most notably, because he was so young. At this time, he was only 17 years old. Can you imagine being trusted with anything when you're 17 years old? Can you imagine the Prophet coming to you when you're 17? He's like, I need you to go (laughs) and protect these shepherds. And he was the general of that army. He wasn't just like a soldier. He was the general. Can you imagine when you're 17? Like, What did your parents ask you to do? Like, they couldn't even trust you taking the garbage to the curb. They were like, make sure you, you know, are going to the grocery store. Don't forget the onions, like the, the amount of trust. And then you look at Osama bin Zaid and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was like, you're in charge. You're the one that's in charge. So Osama bin Zaid, he goes. And despite the fact that he was somebody who was very much like militarily trained, of course, no one disputes his spiritual strength. No one disputes any of that. He was still younger than some of the senior companions, much younger. And so, this story very interestingly has two wrinkles to it. Number one is the wrinkle of the Prophet using his companions, the Muslim community, to go and defend their Jewish neighbors. Right? This is an investment in community, in pluralist community, proving that it's not a religious difference. The only difference is, is your community trying to assassinate me or not? Right? That's why your community is not here. The second wrinkle, which is interesting, is that when Osama bin Zaid is there and they're engaging in battle with these individuals, they're fighting them. And uh, one of the battles that they're fighting, there's an individual who he's engaging with. And that person actually mocks him because he's so young. That person actually makes fun of him. Like, you're a little boy, you know. Um, And he starts making derogatory comments towards him like, you're you're just a kid. Why are you here? You know. And Osama Bin Zay takes that personally, because he's like, first of all, don't talk to me like that. Second of all, you don't know me. Third of all, like, what does my age even matter? I'll fight you. So he comes to, uh, they come to fight each other. And the person who is mocking him, this this, this enemy enemy combatant, he realizes he, he's lost the fight. He gets destroyed. Osama has him. And he starts to run away. He starts to sprint as fast as he can. So Osama, again, at this point, like you guys, you normally you just let him go. In fact, some of the senior companions even said, just let him go. Like he's running from the battle. Just let him go. Don't chase him. But Osama, because he's 17, he's younger. And mocking somebody, it it, it can offend them deeply. Anybody, but especially when you're younger, these things tend to make a lot more, they make they they hurt a lot more. As you get older, they still bother you, but not as much. Right? When you're young and somebody says something, you're like, I must defend my family's lineage. Right? When you're older, you're like, just go to sleep. Who cares? You know? Like, I'm 32 now. I don't care what anyone thinks about me. <laughs> when I was 15, I cared about like what you know the person that Kroger thought of me. Now I'm like, I'm 32. I'm like, yeah, what, what what do you want? You know? And so Osama's very invested in this moment because this person mocked him. So he chases him, he chases him, finally catches him, he wrestles him to the ground. And he holds his sword over him, and that person looks up at him, and he says, "Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu Muhammadan abduhu rasuluh." He utters the statement of faith. He says the shahada. Now, what would you guys think if this happened? Be honest. What would you think? That you're fighting this person, okay? You're 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 engaged in, in, in combat with this person, and then finally they run away. You catch them. And then they they quickly, as fast as they can, they utter the statement of, of Shahada. What do you think he's trying to do? What does everybody think he's trying to do? Everyone's like, go to heaven, but also just like trying to save myself. Because if I'm a Muslim, what can't you do to me anymore? You can't kill me anymore. Right? If I'm Muslim, now my whole life has reset. Everything I've done up until this point is what? Forgiven. So that battle I just fought you in like 30 seconds ago? Yeah, I'm Muslim now. So I'm him. Where's the samosas, you know, like, so he he thought, right, he was saying the statement. Now, Osama had the reaction that probably many of us would have if we were reading the story or if we were hearing the story, which is what? Don't try to pull a slick one on me, man. Right. Don't try to pull that on me. OK, like you think you can just fight, fight, fight. And then when you're about to leave now, you can just say, that's not how this works. So he actually continues and he actually kills the guy. He moves forward and he kills him. When some of the companions heard about what happened, the senior companions, they were shocked. And they were, again, very upset. Very upset. Osama initially thought that he was, like, doing something good. Like, look, I caught that guy. He didn't mean it. And when, when when he tried to, you know, be slick, no, not by me. You can't catch me. You know, like, when you're young, you think you're so smart. It's actually what the word sophomore means. You know what sophomore means? I think it's Greek, right? It means wise fool. Sophomore means wise fool. Because when you're a sophomore in anything, you've only completed what? One year of something. And if you've completed one year of something and you think you're an expert, you're foolish. But you think you're wise because you've done one year. But actually, you have a lot longer before you actually truly understand something. So I'm not calling, obviously, no, of course not. It's foolish. It's not the kind of language we use as companions. But he made a decision that he ended up regretting. And the companions ended up telling him that this was not the right way. He goes back to the Prophet Muhammad and the Prophet doesn't know. So the Prophet does not know what happened. So, but he heard that the battle was an overwhelming success. It was a victory. They had protected their neighbors. They had protected the, the shepherd and the farmer. So he asked Osama, because again, he's the general. They asked him, they said, How was it? Osama said it was good. And he said, I wanted to tell you about this one moment that I had though. And he told him, he told the Prophet Muhammad, this is what happened. And this is one of those very few times, very few times. Like you can count it on one, maybe two hands, where the Prophet Muhammad got upset. Very few. Like read the entire seerah. Do it again. Read it 10 times. And I want you guys to take a piece of paper and just write down the amount of times where he became very upset. And you'll find that in the 23 years of Nabuwa, the 23 years of messengership that he had, him becoming upset is like a phrase that you would rarely hear. And people would do all kinds of things. People would do all kinds of crazy stuff that would make anybody upset normally. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't get upset by the same things that we get upset by. He didn't get upset when people would grab his shirt and demand money from him. He didn't get upset when people would, when as he was distributing some of the, the spoils of war after a battle, someone came up to him and said, fear God, Muhammad. Fear God. Be just. Don't pick favorites here. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? After everything you've done for somebody, they come up to you and they say, I'm watching you. Could you imagine you organize this entire endeavor you take care of it you plan it you fund it and now you're executing it right imagine you plan someone's birthday party right and you do everything you pay for the food you invite everybody it's a surprise party that person comes and they're like i'm watching you don't pull a fast one here you're like what they're like don't take an extra bite don't take two cupcakes you be fair like and that's a birthday party imagine something way more serious like distributing the, the the wealth of the state to into the citizens and somebody has the audacity to come up to the messenger of God and say, be fair. Oh my goodness, my goodness. Now you know why there's stories of Armin Khattab grabbing his sword, being like, I'll take care of him. Now you know because it's just so ridiculous sometimes how we can be as human beings. We all have those moments, right? So he would never get upset by those things. Those things didn't bother him. He would just let it roll off him like water. He's like, okay. Someone comes to the masjid, starts peeing in the in the masjid. He's like, it is what it is. Bedouins, what are you going to do? Tell some companions to clean it up. Someone makes a mistake during prayer. You know, one time somebody uh, somebody made a mistake during prayer. And uh, they talked out loud during the salah while they were praying. And the companions next to that person, they started to clap their hands. You know, like when someone's making a mistake, you can say, subhanAllah, you can kind of like make a noise with your hand just to direct that person's attention. You're not giving the imam applause. You're not like, great job. All right. Short. Mashallah. <laughs> You're not giving applause. Okay. So this person was doing that because this person, basically during prayer, somebody sneezed. And this person was a brand new, accepted Islam, very fresh, like just, accepted. and he said, yadhamakallah. That was the only thing he knew about Islam. Was that when someone sneezes, you say hamakum Allah? That was the only thing he knew. That was what he just learned it. So now they're like, Allah Allah. They're trying to pray. Someone sneezes in prayer. He's like, Ya Allah, In in like hood, you know, like in a quiet prayer. So everyone's like, do be quiet. <laughs> and he's like, What? So then he looks at them, and he goes, he says in prayer, he goes, What's wrong with you guys? He says it out loud. I, guys, I want you to imagine next time you go and pray. Don't do it during prayer. You're going to start laughing. But picture the quiet line in somebody doing this. You know, the prophet Saul said after prayer, you know what he did? He turned around. He said, Salam alaykum, Sanamu alaykum, he finished his prayer. He turned around. And do you guys think there was any doubt about who did that? Do you think there's any doubt like which one of the companions had didn't know that you can't talk during prayer? Is it the brand new guy? But he still asks a question. He says, which one of you was the one who was speaking during prayer all the companions were like that one so then he told him thank you for your enthusiasm like you just learned that and you're excited to use it but in prayer we don't speak right so he didn't get mad at these things it's interesting his kids are jumping not his kids his grandkids Al-Hassan al jumping on him during prayer, didn't get mad. Amazing. His, his, his emotional constitution was rock solid. Didn't get upset by these things. What did he get upset by? He got upset when people transgressed the rights of others. He got upset when people wronged other people. He got upset when people oppressed each other. And when Osama Bin Zay told him the story of what happened. He saw this moment as a moment of transgression. And he asked him a very powerful question. And this is like the first lesson that I want us all to take. He said, did you look in his heart and see that he wasn't truly Muslim, Osama? Did you look in there? And this is a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is, no, there's no way I can do that. But he's asking him powerfully this rhetorical question did you have the ability to open his chest and look inside amazing isn't it amazing and when i when i hear this narration when i read this story over and over again you hear the story sometimes different you know lectures and things like that subhanallah you look at how quick we are as people as a society as a community as individuals to place judgment upon somebody, how quick we are, that if, if, if somebody doesn't measure to our standard of what we believe is right or virtuous, even if you're right, even if you are right, let's say you're right. Let's say like it's a non-negotiable thing. Prayer five times a day. All right. Prayer. Let's say it's a non-negotiable thing. It's not a matter of, uh, of opinions, Right, Because we can differ in opinions all day. Let's say it's like a fact. We believe that Muslims are told to pray five times a day. Okay, And let's say somebody doesn't pray five times a day, whether it's out of struggle or negligence or lack of concern. How quick somebody is to look at that person and place judgment upon them as if they've peered into their chest, as if they've looked into it. And they're able to say something by what? By the way that this person looks or talks or walks. There's like these videos that like circulate around the internet where it's like, listen to this guy's recitation. He's like a Filipino janitor in Saudi Arabia. And he sounds like Qari Abdelbasid. And everyone's like, wow. And the comments are like, wow, ajib. look at how he looks. As if like people who are not Arab cannot recite the Quran beautifully. It's like celebrating like, your own bigotry, <laughs> you know, or you have like, there was one of a Somali brother in a, in a gas station and he was wearing like his hat kind of tilted to the side a little bit. And he had like a puppy vest. I think it was in Minnesota. And they were like, read the Quran, man. And he read it beautifully. And everyone's like, Oh my God. It's like, what are you, what's, where is this assumption coming from? Or, you know, bin bin Khattab, anh, bin Waleed, all these people who converted to Islam after making horrible mistakes Khalid bin Walid was the architect behind the tragic day of Uhud, the day that caused the Prophet ﷺ so much pain that took his uncle from him. And Khalid bin Walid accepted Islam. I wonder sometimes, I really wonder sometimes, if Omar bin Khattab came to us, or if Khalid came to us, or any of these people came to us, and they asked us about inquiring to accept Islam, whether or not we would even take them. I wonder like Omar shows up former alcoholic womanizer in his previous life. This is how he described himself. He said, I was sick. I was sick. I had this issue, this issue. I used to oppress people. I used to hurt people. I used to abuse Muslims. I used to find Muslims and torture them. And when he shows up to accept Islam, does anyone even challenge his sincerity? Does anyone even say to him, "Yeah, but what about you know"? He's like, "I want to take, a, I want to take shahada." No one's like, "Yeah, what about all that though?" We need you to issue a statement, right? The shahada is your statement. When somebody wants to come closer to Allah, that is their statement, right? So it's very important when you look at this statement of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to Osama bin Zayd. His 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 words are very powerful. Did you open his chest and see what was inside of it? The answer obviously being no. And if you did not, which he knows he did not, then don't act like you have. Right? Don't act like you have. So this was the one of the examples of how the prophet sallallahu alaihi number 1 protected the neighbors of medina number 2 how he made sure that every one of his companions lived up to these ethical standards that just because now you were the dominant community just because now you were powerful and you had this kind of you know community swagger like everyone's muslim and now you can you don't trample on people's rights And you don't assume that you know what they actually are or are not. That's not our job. That's the job of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah ta'ala tells us in the Quran, it is upon you to deliver the message and it is upon me to take account. Right? Your job is to simply talk the talk, walk the walk. That's the job of you. Your job is not to grade people. Your job is not to assess people's faith. That's not the job of any individual over another person, right? That's not the job of any individual over another. The next major moment in the seerah, and this is like a really powerful moment. There's, We're going to try to cover two more major moments, inshallah, tonight. Is umratul qada, which is the umrah that was promised, the, 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 the conciliatory umrah, the comp- compensatory umrah that was promised... When the Muslims were going to try to go to Umrah and they were stopped at al hudaybiyah So we talked about this maybe five or six sessions ago. If it's not ringing a bell, go to uh, IGTV or Instagram or go to the podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and listen to al hudaybiyah That story, the story of al hudaybiyah is like a very 100% necessary story for every person to know. So many lessons Right? If you've ever had a question in your life about, like, why do bad things happen? Why does God stop me from doing this? If I wanted to, why is God not answering my prayer? Why? You have to listen to Al Hudaybiyah. Because all of those deep, divine questions about, like, God's reasoning and God's wisdom and strategy are all answered there. They're all answered in that one. Okay. But nevertheless, the result of Al Hudaybiyah, Hudaybiyah is the name of a place, by the way. And that's where the treaty was written. The result of Al Hudaybiyah, was that the Muslims who had gone, 1300 Muslims who had gone to make Umrah, they were told that you, for no reason, can't come in this year, can't come in. Which is strange because people from all over Arabia were always allowed to come visit the Kaaba. People were always, there was no limitation. So they said, you can't come this year, you can come next year. So one year had passed and the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had gathered. Uh, those 1300 people and he actually made an announcement he issued an edict a proclamation he said everyone who came with us last year none of you can stay back everyone has to come so those 1300 people you made that journey by foot right riding and walking this isn't like a nice bus or an airplane in the desert you rode and you Every everyone of y'all has to come back and no one was against it but i want you to Pinpoint this one lesson here that the Prophet is teaching you, which is if you make an intention for the sake of Allah, never back down. If you make an intention for Allah's sake, even if you have to fulfill it a year later, never back down. If your heart settles on something, be principled and make sure you fulfill that intention. Why? Why is it important? And by the way, some of you may have heard this before. Anyone here ever heard this might be kind of a real technical question, but it's okay. We got time, right? No one no one has plans after this, hopefully. And you ever heard that if you plan to fast in the morning, not like a Ramadan fast, like just an extra fast. If you plan to fast in the morning and you fast half the day, you can't break it. You guys ever heard that before? Raise your hand if you've heard that before. You can't break an extra credit fast. Like a Nephil fast, you can't break it. You guys ever heard that? And if you break it, you have to remake it. Okay. So some of you may have heard it. Many of you did not. That's okay. It's it's oftentimes kind of like an, um, it's used as kind of like auntie, like emotional blackmail. No offense if you're an auntie, right? Or no offense if you aspire to be an auntie one day. But basically, it's kind of used, at, you know, um, the old, the time that most people encounter this, let's put it that way, is when there's like a, a, a an extra credit fast to come up. Which, by the way, this Saturday, make sure you fast. Ashura the 10th day of Muharram, make sure you fast this Saturday. If you fast, the Prophet Sallallahu says, your entire previous years of sins get forgiven. Lots of these opportunities. So make sure you don't miss out on them, right? So the time when you encounter this ruling of, if you make a fast, your intention, you start it, you can't break it, is usually during these days. Because like when you're like 13, 14, 15, you're doing it, because everyone else is doing it. And you're like, oh, I'm so tired. I'm going to break my fast. It's not far anyways, right? And then you have like, the auntie like, no, You can't break it. It's not necessarily the case across all the schools of thought, but in some of them, namely the scholars from the Hanafi Madhab, they say that when you make an intention, even if it's supererogatory, which again is one of those only Muslim words, ablution, circumambulation, uh, and supererogatory, only Muslim words, okay, they say, the Hanafi say, when you make an intention, even if it's not an obligation, it's extra obligatory, once you've made the intention, now it's become it's become a, a mandate on you to fulfill that intention. And you know why they say that? It's amazing why they say it. They say, because if you get used to making promises and then just breaking them, which an intention is what? It's a promise to Allah. I intend to do this, Right if you just get used to making intentions and breaking them, intentions and breaking them, you are going to find it very difficult to ever hold yourself to an intention that you make. So the Hanavis say, once you make it, that's it. The fast, sure, it wasn't an obligation. Now it is, because you made it one, right? So when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Umrah is not an obligation. The people who decided to go, they were deciding to go because they wanted to go. It's not hajj, it's Umrah. But the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi said, if you intended to go, you have to go back. Because you have to keep your intention. Don't become people that become flaky with what you intend. Okay? So not only those 1,300, but actually 2,000 total ended up coming. Including a person who had just come from Mecca by the name of Abu Hurairah. Anyone ever heard that name before? Abu Huraira? He's really well known, especially amongst Hadith because he's like a really big hadith narrator. He's somebody that spent a lot of time with the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But you know what's crazy? We haven't heard his name in this series up until this point. Because he just recently accepted Islam. He only spent a few years with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi He only spent a couple years with him. But he accomplished so much. So when you read about Umratul Qada' and you see that Abu Huraira, he accepted Islam and came with the Muslims, you're like, wait, that Abu Huraira. I was expecting him to be like with Abu Bakr way back in the beginning. He did so much. He's like one of the top narrators of hadith and all of hadith. How did he accomplish so much in a little bit of time? How did he become somebody that we hear his name constantly? If anyone ever reads a hadith, you're going to come across his name. How? He only had a couple of years with the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The answer, hard work, hard work. He accomplished spiritually what some of the companions did not accomplish in even 10 years, 20 years. He accomplished it in one-tenth of that time because he focused and worked hard. You want to accomplish spiritual goals? It's like any other goal you set for yourself. You have to actually work hard at it. Waking up for fedger we're like, yeah, that'd be nice one day. You're like, does Fajr ever come in at like 9 a.m.? If it does, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna rock that. Like I will be I will be there. I'll pray to Hedger when Fedger comes in at nine a.m. It's like no man. Like Fedger comes in. I do know people, by the way. I do know some people who live in the southern parts of the United States because Fedger. I think the earliest it ever ends, the earliest sunrise ever happens here is like six a.m. I don't think year round there's ever a time when it when the sun comes up before six a.m. So I know people who are like, we're not moving to Minnesota, right or Boston. I have friends in Boston who fast from like 3 in the morning. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm like still eating like my second cheeseburger during Ramadan in the middle of the night. And They're like, yeah, I just started fasting, right? So, you know, people try to find little perks to make Islam a little bit more easy for them. That's fine. Living in Texas, okay. But waking up at 6 in the morning to pray, it's not easy. Especially now because most of y'all just waking up at 8.30 in your pajamas and opening your laptop. Right. And like logging into work or logging into class. So it's it's difficult to wake up and, and get yourself to pray. But just like anything else, if you want to accomplish great things spiritually, you have to work. It's worth it, but it may not be always easy, but it's always worth it. So when the Prophet, when he did this and Abu Huraira came with them, what's interesting is that on this journey, the Prophet, he actually ended up bringing uh a lot of armor a lot of armor now in the original agreement that the Quraysh had they said to the prophet sallam, that you can only bring each person can only bring their own sword and it has to be covered so you can't walk around with your sword like unsheathed like Ahmad, he used to walk around with his sword around his neck like a necklace right and what is that supposed to mean it's supposed to mean that you know like we're ready you know if you want to mess them like you know it's kind of like people walk around in texas like kind of have their shirt you know, they might be carrying and they're like, just kind of walk around. It's like, dude, this is a 7-Eleven. Relax. You know, <laughs> this is this is a daycare. Like, chill out, you know, like, but they just want to show you that they're ready. So Ahmad was kind of like that. So Quraysh, they said, okay, yeah, of course, you know, you can bring, you know, whatever sword you have because you're traveling in the desert. You need to protect yourself, but it needs to be sheathed. When you get to Mecca, we want to see it covered up. We don't want to see it. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he brought a lot more than that. He brought armor and he brought shields and everything. Interestingly, when the Quraysh had heard, when the Quraysh heard about this, they said, this is strange. They heard that the Prophet was bringing not just the swords that were sheath. They heard that he was bringing horses and shields and all kinds of armor and everything. And they said, is he coming to, like, attack us? And you know what they said, subhanAllah, they sent a messenger. To meet with the Prophet because they heard and they were like, We got to figure things out because if they're coming, we thought they were just coming to do our umrah. We didn't know that they were coming to throw down. So the messenger came, a messenger came to the messenger, alayhi wa sallam. you like that? Bars, right? So they sent a messenger to our messenger, al Salaam. And he said to him, Very interestingly, he said, Oh, Muhammad, he said, I just wanted to, we've heard news, like a rumor that you guys are coming with a lot more than what you agreed to come with. You said you would come with a sword that was in its sheath, but we see that you have horses and all this. What's the deal? The Prophet, ﷺ says, we're not bringing that into Mecca. We didn't mean, we did not intend to ever bring that into Mecca. So he said, what do you mean? He goes, we're bringing it with us to take care of ourselves in case we need to. But we were planning on leaving it outside of the city. And you know what the messenger, the one that was sent from Korah, you know what he says to him? He goes, I thought so. He goes, you've always been a person that's been trustworthy. Isn't this crazy? This is somebody that does not believe he's a messenger of God. And when the prophet, Sal says, no, we weren't ever going to bring it into the city, the messenger goes, I knew that. I knew that. Like, you're 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 so trustworthy. Everyone was shocked in Mecca because we were like, how is he not doing what he said he was going to do? This is mind-blowing to us. He's always been somebody. Reputation. How important is reputation? The prophet didn't even have to finish his sentence. He didn't even have to. You know, if somebody's concerned at your workplace about your punctuality or your productivity or your focus or whatever, right? Things happen. It's weird. You know, like people, did you, you, uh," you know, someone's complaining that you... You're being cold towards them. Like HR calls you in, they're like, "Are you? Do you have some issues, some tension with something?" You're like, "No." And a lot of times in those situations, you actually kind of have to defend yourself. You're like, "No, no, no. Like, it's not no. I, this and that, and then no. I had no no ill will toward that person, right? But the people that are able to untangle those situations very quickly are the ones whose reputations precede them. So if you're somebody, that everybody on in, in in on your floor, everybody in your office can vouch for you. Everybody, they're like, I know him, he's great. I know her, she's amazing. Right? What's her name? I don't know, but she brings in donuts. Wallahi, guys, if you want to win, just bring donuts. Win what? Anything. If you want to win your classroom over your 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 office, just bring donuts. It works. Your kids. When Moose is throwing a tantrum, I'm like, I have donuts. He's like. Hi, good morning, right? Like it's a fresh start. It's like 3 p.m. Right. They don't even need to know your name. They're just like, oh, yeah, they bring donuts every Friday. They say something about Jemma Mubarak. I don't know what that means. I like the I like the the eclairs. I don't know what kind of Juma donut that is. Right. I like that donut. Your reputation precedes you. Now, if anything happens, it's a crazy world, man. People might say if anything happens, you're like, no. And without you even having to finish your sentence, they're like, Yeah, we know. We know what kind of person you are. You're one of the good ones. You see how important reputation is? I'm not trying to sound like again, like auntie moment, like number auntie rule number one, you can't break your fast once you started it. <laughs> number two, your reputation precedes you. Look ya can right? Like, what are people gonna say? As 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 nauseating as that kind of and it was—it's kind of more done in, in it kind of a little bit of an emotional blackmail kind of way, but the principle stands, which is you have to be concerned about your reputation to a reasonable degree. You can't—you can't make someone think something about you. You can't go inside their heart and fix how they think about you. No. But you also should not ascribe to yourself. A nonchalant attitude about how you appear to people it's not how the prophet ﷺ handled himself and look these are people that tortured him these are people that harassed him these are people that made his life miserable for 20 years and when they came to him asking him about a confusion they had about something and he said "Nah, that wasn't my intention they said yeah we know They still trusted him, despite the fact that they didn't believe in him. Are there people in your life that even if they don't necessarily agree with you, they still trust you? Even if they don't share the same values you do, they still trust you? That's a really powerful place to be, right? So the Prophet Muhammad, he had this reputation of being trustworthy and truthful. And what happened was when the Muslims had set their arms and their their weapons aside like you know uh like 20 or so kilometers outside of the city they had left them there almost like in a depository with 200 of the companions and 1800 of them continued on to make umrah now when they went in to make umrah when they entered the city something very interesting happened this was an agreement it was not surprising it wasn't shocking to anybody all of quraish knew that this was happening but what did they do when Quraysh saw the Muslims entering the city of Mecca, you know what they did? They left. They left. They went to the mountains. They went to the surrounding areas. Most of them left. Some of them stayed. Some of them, when they saw the Muslims walking in and wearing ihram, saying, لَبَّيْكَ اللَّهُ بَا You know, praising Allah, happy, elated, joyous that they were able to make an umrah. Some of them, like Abu Jahl's son, Akrima radiallahu anhu, becomes Muslim later. Khalid bin Walid, who becomes Muslim later. Amr bin La'as, who becomes Muslim later. You know what they all said? They're like, thank God none of our elders were alive to see this today. They would be rolling in their graves. They are rolling in their graves. What a shame that these Muslims have come in. Not only that, the Prophet, sallam, he tells one of his companions, Abdullah bin Rawaha, he tells him, he says, repeat after me. La ilaha illallah, enjaza wa'da wa nasara abda wa hazma al ahzaba wa'da. Wa junda is one of the other narrations. He says, say this out loud. There is nothing worthy of worship except for Allah, enjaza wa'da, that he kept his promise, wa nasara and he aided his servant, wa hazma al ahzaba And he conquered all of the, the ahzab, the tribes that came to attack, he conquered them by himself. So he told Abdullah to say this, to remind the Muslims and the Quraysh that this, what we're doing right now, we didn't just come and steal. We didn't just come and walk in. You guys made this so difficult for us. And also, it was a miracle. If you look back 10 years prior, 8 years prior when the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi left Mecca, how did he leave, y'all? How did the Prophet Sallallahu leave Mecca to go to Medina? Did he leave openly with th- with thousands of Muslims? Were they all like, all right, guys, thanks. Mecca was great. New year, new me. Going to Medina. Like, Was it like, no. How did they leave? They snuck out. Yeah, I see one person going like this. Right? Yeah, they snuck out. Why? Because they couldn't leave. So if you told somebody, if you told somebody, yeah, you know what? Those Muslims who just left and they snuck out and they're in Medina and that's their new safe haven city. If you told the Meccans that they're going to come back and freely walk around this Kaaba seven times and make Safa and Marwa seven times, and they're going to do it without worrying for their lives, people would have laughed. They're like, there's no way they're ever coming back. There's no way they're ever coming back. So the Prophet Wasallam said, repeat this to remind them that they don't control this city. Allah does. So they did this and they made their Umrah. And these people, even though they agreed to it, they fled to the mountains. Why? Because they were sore losers. And this is actually something of a principle that we, we never, ever want to be. Don't ever be a sore loser. I'm not talking about sports. I'm talking about socially. Right? Have you guys ever not wanted to be at a gathering, but you had to go? Anybody? You guys ever had to go to a wedding you didn't want to go to? I like how when I say wedding, everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like well, you reminded me, right? You just didn't want to go, right? For whatever reason. Or have you ever had to go and like congratulate somebody that you didn't like? Maybe you had an issue with them or something, or you didn't particularly weren't fond of them, right? And maybe like at that moment, you were a sore loser, right? Like it was that person's wedding, it was that person's graduation, it was that person. And in that moment, you couldn't just be a good person. I couldn't just be a good person. You know, that person gets a job, and I'm like, who would hire you? This guy, huh? Do they know what kind of guy they hired? And the person's, like, trying to act as if they're joking. But no, you're just being a sore loser. You just can't accept that this is this person's moment. Right? Somebody gets married, you're like, man, how'd you pull that off? And the guy's like, what are you talking about? It's like a room full of friends congratulating him. You have the one guy who's like, yeah, I don't know. Who would marry you? Subhanallah. Du'as really do work you know by the way I know we're all like thinking it, but I've actually heard statements like this I've been a part of gatherings where like somebody made a meal and someone's like wow you order in or like what well, like person just cannot you know and, and Imam Molud of his uh, purification of the heart poem he said this is a sign of envy within the hearts of people that when good things happen to somebody else you can't just celebrate for them you have to take a little shot right oh you got a new job Let's see how long that lasts. I've heard these statements. I'm just like, what side of the bed did you wake up? Did you even wake up on a bed today? Like, there's just bad sides of beds for you, subhanAllah. So these people, Quraysh, they did this exact same characteristic. When the Muslims came to make Umrah, they were like, we don't want to be here. They couldn't just be honorable people. For as dignified as they thought they were, no, no dignity there. As soon as they came in, right, they left. This is like Isaiah Thomas. And the bulls i know it's kind of a random joke but you'll inshallah watch watch the last dance you'll get it one day inshallah. okay Isaiah thomas sore loser right may allah ta'ala protect us okay so that was something that they noticed and then the last and this is what the prophet did and we'll conclude here because it's almost maghrib time the prophet had a beautiful way of taking social bigotry and addressing it head-on. He always had wisdom, and he always had class. He never, ever did things in a way that were abrasive or brash. He did things with thought, and he always thought things out. And when he, it was time to pray, he asked Bilal, radiallahu to climb the Kaaba and to stand on top of it and to call van so that the Muslims could pray. And I want you to imagine that this Bilal was the Bilal that was sitting, was tied down in the streets of Mecca, being tortured by Umayya bin Khalaf, screaming, ahadun ahad, as a boulder was placed on his chest in the heat of the day. This was the one that was tortured day in and day out that abu bakr had to come and buy him from slavery to free him and now he went from being tied to the ground of mecca to being at the highest point on top of the kaaba claiming and proclaiming god's greatness this is not a coincidence the prophet muhammad did not just think it would be a nice aesthetic right it wouldn't be great for the gram golden hour Oh, it's Maghrib. Go give, go give Adhan, right? Golden hour. That's not what it was. The Prophet wa sallam, here was making a very clear statement that every single piece of that age of ignorance, everything, the classism, the religious harassment and torture, and the racism, all of that has no place in what we call the Ummah of the Prophet Muhammad. No place here. And to emphasize that to you people, is what he's saying. To emphasize that, I myself am not going to go call the Adhan. I'm not going to ask Abu Bakr or anybody else to do it. Not going to have any of our Muslim poets go up there and recite poetry. I'm going to ask Bilal, who you might see as a former slave, but he's one of our luminaries. You might see him as dark, but he lights up the world for us. I'm going to have him go and call them And I want you to see that because you need to see how Islam transforms people. And the Prophet when he did that, there are narrations where Umayy ibn Khalaf's son and Safwan is his name and others, they were like totally, for lack of a better phrase, they were shook. They didn't know how to process it. Because they were so programmed to think this way about Bilal and others, that when they saw the honor that the Messenger of Allah had given them, they didn't know. It's almost like they had come into own, their own, they'd come into confrontation with their own demons. They didn't know how to process it. The Prophet Wasallam he had a very beautiful way of just completely and totally taking people's social expectations and flipping them on their heads. We talked about before Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum, where when the Prophet ﷺ was leaving Medina, someone has to stay in charge, right? Somebody has to watch Medina while he's gone. So he picks Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum, who is who? He is from the poorer class. He is not well-known amongst the, you know, uh, the more, you know, elite people. And also he's blind. He can't see. And the Prophet ﷺ says, Abdullah bin Umm Maktoum is going to be our Mu'advan. He's going to call the Adhan he and Bilal are going to share that responsibility. So some of the companions are like, how? How does he call the event? You know how you call the event? You have to see what? You have to do what? How do we know it's Malgrub, guys? Your phone, right? No, you know it's Maghrib because you can see that the sun is setting. You know it's Dhuhr because you can see the sun is at its zenith. You know it's Fajr because the sun hasn't risen yet. So some of the companions were like, ya Rasulullah, we don't want, we don't disagree with your with your choice, but there's a very clear occupational issue here and that is that you've chosen somebody to do a job that requires them to see and he is not able to see the prophet said i know that so they said how is it going to work he goes you see it and you tell him he didn't say oh you know what you don't really fit the qualifications Abdullah, sorry no he flipped their expectations on its head he said we don't just say that somebody can't do that because they can't no you're going to tell them when Hey, Abdullah bin al-Maktoum. Yes, it's Dhuhr time. Can you call the Adhan? Yes. We don't live in Mecca anymore, in in, in Jahili Mecca, where people, because they are blind or because of what Allah, how Allah made them, whether it's their ability or whether it's their inability or disabilities, whether they're the color of their skin, we don't live in that world anymore. Right? We live in a different world, in Akramakum wa'indullahi atqakum, where God only judges you by your piety. That's where we live. So that's why he says, Bilal, go ahead and call the Adhan. Because we live in a different Mecca now. And Bilal goes up there and calls the Adan, And he calls people to pray. And it's like a new era now with the Muslims. That they had finally finished their Umrah. And they had prayed in Mecca. And they spent three days there. Living, worshipping, praying, socializing. And I'll finish with this last point before we break from Maghrib ourselves. One of the things that the Quraysh became very concerned about in this time was something very interesting. And I'll share this with you because I think this is something that can immediately apply to us. The Quraysh wanted to protect the Meccans from seeing the Muslims interacting. They didn't want to see how the Muslims were interacting with each other. Why? Because the Muslims were really friendly with one another. And they were like sharing resources and food and being kind. Right? We've heard stories about people who like faked eating so that the other people would eat their food right remember, remember those stories this is the this is the the muslim this is what makes somebody part and parcel of your faith are these character traits that the Prophet Muslim taught us think for a moment just pause and think for a moment about how much of what is considered supremely good character in the western construct is something that's like already embedded to you because of your muslim faith Things like generosity. Have you guys ever tried to pay for somebody who maybe was not from the Muslim faith? Have you ever tried to pay? Anyone here ever gone to eat lunch with a fellow Muslim? You guys ever had that awkward, who's going to pay? Not who's going to pay because you want, but you're like, I'm taking care of it. I'm paying. And then the waiter or waitress gets really weirded out. You guys ever had that before? I know it's been a while since we've gone out, guys, but you guys ever had that before? And then when you go out with, with someone else, maybe who's not used to that, right? And it's seen as like a hyper generous thing to do. They're like, no, 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 I got money. Don't worry, I'm fine. They're taking it as like sadaqah. They're like, no, no, I'm good. Like I have an apartment. They start showing you their deed of their home. They're like, I'm good. You don't have to pay for me. You're like, no, I'm not paying for you because I think you're poor. I'm paying for you because we're friends. I got you. You you know, I got you, you get me next time. And it's such a foreign concept to some people, right? But within the... The, the, the you know some cultures yes, but within the Islamic community, it is encouraged by the Prophet ﷺ to hadu tahabu, give gifts. These things are encouraged not only by our cultural traits, not only by our our heritage of culture, but what? By our faith. Give people gifts, take care of people, make sure that people be hospitable. All of these things are considered. So the Meccans, they were scared. They didn't want the Meccan people, the Meccan leaders did not want their people seeing how the Muslims were just like amazing with each other. Because why? And it started happening. Their hearts started to soften and they're like, man, is this what community feels like? Is this what brotherhood and sisterhood feels like? You know, last week, like we had one of our brothers here take a shahada. You know, he wanted to, he's been coming and listening for a long time. but He took shahada. And one of the things that I asked him, I said, you know what? What kind of, he's been coming to heart work for a long time. I said, what kind of pushed you, what kind of pushed you through, I guess, right? That the wall there to accept Shahada formerly. And he said, honestly, just the way that I feel when I'm here. Like the way that people are so kind and this. Obviously, everyone has stories about like, well, I was made to feel unwelcome at this masjid or this place or this community. That happens. We're human beings, right? But don't ever forget that. The good character that you carry oftentimes is the best way to teach people about your faith. The good character, who you are, is the best way to teach people about Allah and his messenger. It's the best introduction. People are going to ask you, why are you this way? In a world that is so absent of virtue, why are you so different? And your answer is simple. This is what my prophet taught me. This is what Muhammad sallallahu taught me. They say, who's that? You're like, let me let me teach you. Right? The experience itself speaks for itself. So we ask Allah to grant us tawfiq. We ask Allah to purify our hearts and to give us strong faith. We ask Allah to make us people who represent the Prophet wa well. With all of our shortcomings and all of our mistakes, we ask Allah to grant us pardoning and forgiveness for our mistakes. And we ask Allah to bring us closer to him. We ask Allah to give us to give us strength in these moments in these months and in these weeks and days of uncertainty and of struggle we ask allah ta'ala to give us connectedness when we are so far apart from each other we ask allah ta'ala to give us strong faith because these days they demand from us having strong faith amin everybody um, how is everyone's experience generally with the outdoor setup thumbs up we okay all right Alhamdulillah. um so inshallah inshallah We are planning on having this be like a thing. So Monday nights for sure. And then as time goes on, we'll be increasing uh, with different programs that you guys may remember from our previous space, uh, inshallah. So we will be hopefully doing more things. You'll be seeing it all being put out there on social media and in the telegram groups. But just let that kind of sink in inshallah that this is our new home. It's kind of nice. Obviously, it's always weather permitting. So hopefully it stays dry and cool. And, uh we won't have to deal with a lot of rain and things like that but yeah alhamdulillah i'm very happy i love all of you so much for the sake of allah and it makes me so happy to see us being able to come out even if it's kind of a strange setup um with this thing and you know all the precautions the mask and everybody i can't see your beautiful smiles but i know that they're there or at least i imagine them when i do make my jokes that you guys are laughing so uh but yeah alhamdulillah thank you guys again for being a part of this community and and, and trusting the whole community with your spiritual development it means a lot and i hope inshallah and pray that we can honor your uh your investment into the community inshallah we'll be praying maghrib the qibla is that way so if you look at that tree it's like towards it's like through the tree uh that direction so what we'll be doing is just on your prayer rugs you can turn them to face that way and we'll be doing maghrib uh we won't be able to have the speaker because we didn't bring our wireless setup this week but next week we will so we're just gonna say the takbir out loud and then we'll have uh, Safi brother Safi our youth director in prayer bugle he'll call it out so that everyone can hear in the back.